Hello, and welcome to another episode of Book Faces Live, the show where we talk to the faces behind your books. I'm Nathan Van Koops. I'm your host. And today, I am excited to bring you an interview with a special guest, the, uh, the, the very verbal and verbally exciting uh, David, Damon Swade. Welcome to the show, Damon. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Um, of course, we got to meet in person this last year at Nink, which was, which was a lot of fun. And one of my biggest regrets from that week was that I didn't make it to one of your uh, talks because I, I, you were, of course, you write romance and the, the, the labels were like, oh, this is a romance talk. I don't write romance. I don't need to go in there. And the rest of the week, everyone's kept talking about, oh my gosh, this talk was amazing. You should have been there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, why didn't I go? But well, I'm happy I'll be to have back, you back this year. I'll be back this year so you can hit it this year. Which is fantastic. I will be there. I will absolutely be in, in attendance of anything you say from here on out. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you, thank you for being here. I'm excited because this is a rare opportunity for me for me to interview someone while I'm right in the middle of reading their book. I'm uh, reading Verbalize right now, but for people who aren't familiar with this book and this this series that you're writing, can you tell people a little bit about the meat of Verbalize? So I come to genre fiction from film and television and theater and comics, and when I first started writing genre fiction, I sort of brought all my bag of tricks in with me. And I found it really strange. But when you when you first start writing romance, obviously you read a lot of romance, you sort of see what the genre is. And a lot of times I would be talking to authors and they would say I would say things like, Well, so the book you're working on, what's the what's your hero like? And they would say, Well he has hazel eyes and brown hair. Yeah. <laughs> and I would say that's not a character, that's a headshot. And because I come from film and television, like I don't think of casting that way because I can write, uh, like I could write an erotic thriller for Idris Elba, and it winds up a web cartoon starring Polly Shore as a talking poodle. <laughs> so you never know who's going to get cast, and so you yeah. can't rely in storytelling on externals or on trivia. And so I, of course, did all this characterization stuff that I'd sort of been doing in scripts for so long because when you work for actors, they want to do stuff. They want to actually mm -hmm. have stories that matter and they want to have, sort of take action on the page and so when I started teaching genre fiction classes like classes for genre fiction authors everyone said what is this thing you're doing what is this language thing you're doing and I said oh well I verbalized them and they were like what does that mean and Kristen Higgins um, and I did a sort of co-taught a class and at the end of it, she sort of turned to me, mouth open, and she was like, that was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And I was like, what are you talking about? Everybody works this way. And she yeah. said, no, no, nobody works this way. What I do fundamentally, the core idea of verbalize is that rather than starting from sort of height, weight, job, hair color, eye color, you know, mm -hmm. general demeanor, adjectival descriptions of characters, yeah. I always start with the action of the character. And so mm -hmm. I start by casting verbs. And once you build a base verb for a character, you know what the character is going to do dynamically on every page of your story mm -hmm. and then based on that verb you come up with tactics uh, you start with an action and then that action is unpacked into tactics so that in each scene you get different facets of the action and um, it allows you to do pretty cool things because you can actually structure your entire you can plot your entire book with a thesaurus and you can if you're a plotter or a pantser there are ways to use language there's no inherent bias baked in to language and so it helps you step away from like your own personal prejudices and mm -hmm. expectations assumptions it helps you sidestep stereotypes it also helps you sell the books better because the language you use to sell books is actually active transitive verbs yeah <laughs> so it it's, kind of works on all levels it's part of that fundamental thing we're always told uh, show don't tell 
but they, exactly. this is kind of a, well, how, you know, like, what am I showing about this character? Like what, which actions kind of define them? You know, like, and this is, this is a big help to me personally, because this is one of the, that's one of those things I've always struggled with. I mean, it's so much easier to just like tell something obviously, but right. showing this character through their action um, tells you so much more about them. And it specifies them. I mean, I think one of the great traps, especially when you first get into writing, is suddenly you're God and you have total control over this universe and anything you say goes. Mm -hmm. And so everyone is rich and everyone's gorgeous and everyone has orgasms every time they sit down and everything is perfect for them all the time. And then gradually, as you sort of mature as a writer, you're like, oh, wait, it's the problems that make things interesting. And then you come up with problems that are not like every other movie, book, comic, video game you've ever come in contact with. Mm -hmm. And so then that means... How do I specify their actions? How do I get sort of drill down? And the thing with verbs is they are inherently and always the only active part of language. They're the mm-hmm. only thing that happens. And if yeah. you look back sort of historically at literature, every great author in the canon has said, yeah, yeah, nouns, yeah, yeah, adjectives, never use adverbs, right. but verbs, verbs are where it's at. And it's yeah. because action, right? Aristotle says it. Aristotle actually, the word he uses for character is ethos, which means habitual action. The word he uses for plot is muthos, which we translate as myth, which means action words. I mean, it, mm. it's action always. Yeah. And that's kind of the fundamentals of story. It's not a story unless something happens. So, right. I mean, so you it gets to change. You can tell us all about people and scenery and settings and yeah, there's, it's not a story yet. So I think that's... But in a way, that stuff's parsley. And it's not that you don't do it. It's not that I don't figure out their hair color and their eye color and their job. That stuff is great. It's just Mm -hmm. later. Because if I make assumptions early on about a character, I'm going to get myself in the weeds. And this is how, when you you know, people talk about the second act slump. And this is true in screenwriting Mm -hmm. and in books. You get into that sort of middle, that middle chunk of the book, and you run out of steam because you know what they look like, but they have nothing to do. And so it's sort Mm -hmm. of like wheeling around the side of beef. (laughs) <laughs> who is totally passive. And yeah. so everyone's like, a really hot side of beef sitting there doing nothing. But yeah. as long as they have that verb, that action, they can do something. Yeah, that's really important. And I think one of the things, I've, like I said, I'm only you know, 10% of the way in your book right now so far, but I've barely even touched into it yet. But a couple, there's already been things I've been highlighting. Um, Good. One of which, was one of my favorite things you said, was writers provide jungle gems for the reader's imagination. Um, mm. Which I thought was really cool. Like it makes you think about because one of the big things you you talk about right in the beginning is that characters aren't real people. They're not three dimensional. They're not. We don't have to fill in. They all can't the gaps. be. And I thought that the jungle gym was such a perfect metaphor because it's just structure. Like if you look at these backyard jungle gyms, there's hardly anything there. You can see right through it. All that space is something that you fill in. And then uh, you play with. And you play you with it. You play yeah. with it, right? I mean, I always say, like, a character is an action figure, just like a yeah. doll. I mean, it has a range of motion, and it has certain things it can and cannot do. It bends in certain ways, and it has limits. Mm-hmm. But it is designed to be played with. And if you as an author can't have fun playing with the character, yeah. the reader is never going to have fun playing with the character. Yeah. This is how fan fiction happens. Like, this is how fandoms happen, is you create a character, and that character is so fun to play with, no one can put it down. Yeah. And I think that's how you create sort of best-selling series and world-changing narratives is you create an action that is so fun, mm-hmm. no one wants to stop being in it and with it. Yeah, and I think that's more like that's a good point because I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but the, the great stories that people create fan fiction about, for example, they want to write their own stories using your character as the, as the right. basis. You know, like all the Harry Potter or whatever it is. Um, it makes me think about when you were talking about the action figures. Um, I, I loved action figures when I was a kid, but we didn't have a lot of money. And like back then in the 80s, like the Transformers were like the big thing. 
But we couldn't afford more than one transformer. And I went out and picked out a transformer, and it was a turns out it was a Decepticon. It was a plane. It turned in, it was the one that turned into a plane, and I'm like, it was Starscream or something like that. And I'm like, this is the best one. Only then, after I bought it, did I realize it was a bad guy. And I'm like, no, it can't be a bad guy. <laughs> but in like, I, the one transformer that I can have for my life cannot be the bad. Guy. So in my stories, all my stories, Starscream was the hero. Yeah, you know I mean, and like he was the best. That one. is a perfect example. Then that's yeah. a, you literally transform the action of that character. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, re- that's- I redefined him for me. You know, it's because I I had a different relationship with him than everyone else. So I always have a soft spot for that that character. Um, well, think about things like you know we talk about sort of diversity and inclusivity in genre fiction, which is a huge topic, and and it kind of across the market in every corner of entertainment and i think one of the weirdest things that we have to deal with is the amount of projection that we do onto characters as an audience right as readers and the thing is um i call it the band-aid problem it's the reason that you know when people say a band-aid is flesh colored i always say who's flesh right because actually band-aids are not flesh colored they're actually a weird milky creamy beige that is not anyone's flesh yeah. color and if you think of like white as neutral or straight as neutral or or man as neutral mm-hmm. you're actually immediately skewing your story and mm-hmm. skewing everything you ever do here's the deal verbs don't have a gender verbs don't have a race verbs don't have any limits and so yeah. there's nothing boxing you in there's no one that says that has to be a villain that has to be a protagonist right. that has to be a girl none of those things apply because language is by i mean it's our superpower right mm-hmm. use your work and as writers sort of embracing the power in language sets free all these possibilities in our voices it mm-hmm. makes us better writers it makes it yeah. stretches our books and our imaginations and actions can be uh comparative which is interesting i was talking with a friend about this about the the kind of the magic of George R. R. Martin's world, the Game of Thrones series, for example. Like, in the very beginning of that, that show, you hate Jamie Lannister. He's the worst person. His actions, he threw a kid out the window in the very first episode. You hate him. Right. He's the worst. Then later on, you're, like, rooting for him because he's your best possible option out of all these other terrible people that you've got in the scene. Right. His actions are actually the best actions that you can follow along with, which is, like, it's fascinating that you can take a character who and redefine them based on their actions in this way, which I think he does an amazing job of. Well, I think that's actually why something like Game of Thrones can unpack over so much time Mm -hmm. and why the fans locked into it. I mean, 20 years they've been waiting for Winds of Winter, right? Right, So, Like, they've been waiting, and Rumor of Spring. Like, those books are so far on the horizon, but it's because the actions are so compelling Mm -hmm. that they they can see the trajectory. I mean, I think that's another thing, going back to the Jungle Gym idea. Like, when we talk about, say, Fitzwilliam Darcy, right? If you talk about Jane Austen, there are people who have fantasies like deep intense fantasies about something that is really only a couple thousand words right. in a written 200 years ago and so they're fantasizing about squiggles there's no man named fitzwilliam darcy there right. is no pimperly it's that she built austin built this perfect jungle gym and then they played on the jungle gym and darcy changes because darcy in 1982 on the bbc is a different darcy than you know 1995 mm-hmm. Colin Firth which is different than Matthew McFadden in 2005 like each yeah. of those is a different darcy the action stays the same but the way we want to play with them changes and so the depiction changes this yeah. is one of the reasons that movies are so frustrating for people who love books because the movie has to make changes they mm-hmm. have to edit to make yeah. it filmable to bring it to life um, yeah. in a visual medium. Yeah, I was just rewatching the original 1930, well, not original, not even original, but the 1938 version of Robin Hood, which I grew up with, you know, kind of around That's the time. That's my favorite, Errol yeah, Flynn. Errol sure. Flynn. But, like, you could not put Russell Crowe in that in those tights with the little sparkly, you know, sleeves on it. It wouldn't have worked. Russell would not wear that. So, 
but no, both Robin Hood. Olivia de Havilland led to Michael Prade in the 1980s, right? Yeah. Like you, those, they're different worlds. They're the yeah. same actions, but they're different worlds that you're yeah. playing in. And it's interesting how everyone will have their own, you know, favorite version of this. But this is something that I think is really unique about the way you come at this because you are coming from a theater and a stage and you know a screenwriting kind of a background. So for you, the character, the actors are interchangeable. The, right. the character, but how, and you give them room to do something a little bit differently, um, or at least you're coming at it from, from like this said, the action. How will people play this? But well, you, you know, it's funny. A lot of, I think a lot of, one of the big traps in genre fiction, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, no, um, the, um, one of the traps in genre fiction right now is that most writing about writing is done for people who want to be screenwriters. Mm-hmm. None of those people will ever be screenwriters because a movie does not work the way a screenplay seems to work. And when you work in the business, you realize like, oh, this is a blueprint. No one goes and lives in a blueprint. No one looks at a blueprint and is like, oh, that house is so beautiful. Yeah. No one goes to look at a roller coaster to admire the screws and the planks and the yeah. platform. Yeah. They're wanting the emotional ride. The, the trick is all those books that teach people how to write movies are actually nothing to do with fiction. I mean, they're, they're corollaries, but like a book has a completely different emotional terrain, a completely different structure. It happens internally. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't even happen. You cannot have a book as a collective unless you're reading it out loud. So even the idea of sitting next to someone in the dark and looking at light on a wall is different than I read it. It happens in my head. And so like you're, you're exploring a different kind of character. And so, like, you know, some people will say, like, oh, I see it, it's a movie in my head, and I'm like, right, but the movie in your head will never be the movie in their head. You have to give them something that's so compelling that they make a movie in their head, Mm -hmm. and that their movie is as interesting or more interesting than the movie in your head. And that's that's the fun... That's actually, when I moved into fiction from film, that was one of the coolest things, is that, on the one hand, when you're working in theater or television or movies or video games, comics someone else is visualizing everything for you. Well, that's true in fiction, too, only it's the reader. Mm-hmm. The reader is doing it. And that's yeah. why I always say, like, people talk about fiction, and they're like, oh, we have to use our imaginations. And I'm like, no, we have to use their imaginations. Yeah. We have to be curious so they can be imaginative. Because it's we're giving them grit. They are the oyster. Yeah. They make the pearl, right? We put the sand in the oyster. And it's amazing how... You can almost get a gauge of people's imagination sometimes, even just mm-hmm. reading reviews, for example. I'll look at my reviews. Of course. I have completely conflicting reviews from one review to the next. Like, the exact same thing. Oh, this, these characters are so f- well fleshed out. And some are like, oh, like, these characters are cardboard. Like, it's their imagination filled in the gaps so much better. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever structure I gave them, they ran with it. Versus they were like, no, this is, this is all I get. Like, they, they lacked the imagination to fill in the details. And, it, and it's... It's a function of genre, too, right? Because expectations come with genre. And so different readerships are going to show up like with different baggage and with different expectations and with kind of different tools to handle that. Mm-hmm. And so a book that is a blowout for super fans in a genre may be a dead horse for anyone who's not part of that genre. Yeah. You see it over and over again in different genres, right? Cozy mystery, thrillers, sci-fi. Certain things will blow up for non-fans of the genre. But within the genre, it's sort of anathema. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to, way to look at it too. Um, we did have a couple. Of, we have some people watching. Have some comments. Um, Don and Marilyn are watching. Hi, thanks for watching. Joe Solari is watching. Um, Don says, "I definitely believe that story is visualized uniquely by each individual reader." Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you for the comments. And if you have questions for Damon th- throughout this episode, feel free to throw those up, and I'll happily relay them to you. Uh, and <laughs> Marilyn says, "Loving the red headset." 
<laughs> so, this was a present from my husband. He yeah. was like, I'm getting you the biggest, reddest headset. I live in Manhattan, <laughs> and the noise is always a problem. Yeah. So he was like, sound canceling right here. Yeah, no, it's perfect. It actually goes well with the cover. We got the cover of Everything. Yeah, all red all the time here. This, this is good. Um, so one of the things that I was excited about when I first picked up Verbalize was even when I opened up the first the first few pages, I'm like, this is different. This is not everybody else's book. Right. Like this is not the. I've got a lot of writers' guides, you know. So when people think, okay, um, another writer's guide, like this one is is, is different. One of the things right, right. I did is you did a bunch of exercises or you gave people a bunch of exercises, and they weren't just okay, make a bunch of character traits. You know, you had some right. other really unique ones. Could you give a couple of people, people like maybe um, like a few insights into some of the exercises you do and like ways, some of the actual tips people can, can get from this book? It's obviously a big book. We can't talk about all of them, but maybe right. give them a handful. Well, I'll tell you, I, my thing, um, I collect writing guides. And I mean, I collect writing guides going back to the 14th century. So like, I'm a crazed reader. And yeah. so I, I, if there is a book out there for storytelling... I probably have it on my shelves here. Yeah. Um, my thing is, I want every writer who picks up a book that I write to. If I'm writing nonfic, I want you to leave with something practical you can use. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I'm never going to write a book that's only for plotters or only for pantsers or only for newbies or only for the old hookers. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like whoever it is that comes to the table, everyone deserves something that they can use immediately. Otherwise, yeah. like, screw me, I'm not doing my job. And so. For me, the exercises, my thing was, um, I had a student actually down in Florida um, whose name's Kara Carson, a category romance writer, and she said, we were in the middle of doing this big eight-hour, this crazy eight-hour session, and she said, I feel like I'm looking through the matrix at my characters. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm passing through because up until now, she had been treating her characters like dolls in a dollhouse. Like she built like little people with blonde hair or brown hair, with mm -hmm. dark skin, with light skin, and then she moved them around the set that she had yeah. built. And she said, effectively, I'm looking through them now. And so, I mean, eventually I'll play with them. But now I can see what's sort of moving in their veins. And so each of the exercises, in a way, is it's like Kabbalah for writers. I'm trying to smash their heads. I'm trying to sort of crack it open so they see, yes, I'm going to play with them, mm -hmm. but I have to give them energy. Like, there has to be sort of blood in their veins, fire in their wire, so okay. that there's something to play with. Because otherwise, they're inert, right? They're just a series of dolls. This mm -hmm. is why you see, like, in certain kinds of fantasy, especially high fantasy, you see a lot of, like, dark lords, right? Yeah. You see sort of a dude that's sort of dark on the horizon that has the sword of Yak or the ring of Fingalfang. <laughs> because, well, what happens is people read a bunch of books, and they're yeah. like, David Eddings and George R. R. Martin and Tolkien, yeah. and then they're going to regurgitate whatever they think the genre fans want. And in right. a way, they're right, because expectations are real. Yeah. But the goal of a real writer is to exceed the expectations, and mm -hmm. that means... You have to sort of dig deeper. And so the, the goal of the exercises in each case, I've tried to sort them by like utility so that when you go into the book and you're like, all right, who is this suede guy? What is this verbalized thing? You can say, this is my problem right now. This is how he thinks I can address the problem differently. Because mm -hmm. you sort of want to smack your expectations out of the way. So you come at it at, an ang at a fresh angle. Right, yeah. because we've all been we've all been in that writing class where they're like, "What's your height? What's your weight? What's your eye color, hair color, job? When did you lose your virginity? What mm -hmm. kind of shoes are you wearing? Mm -hmm. Please tell me how you write that." Right, and the and yeah. the truth is, like, if I'm in a writing class, I'll say to people, "Okay, how many of you done these sort of personal ads? I call them impersonal ads. Yeah. But when you do these personal ads, how much do you use?" And most people are like two percent, five percent, which is the equivalent of learning to cook by aiming a flamethrower at your pantry and then licking whatever goo cooks <laughs> or or like drinking wine by smashing a bottle against the wall and licking the bricks because yeah. that's totally inefficient. And the, yeah. the thing is 
all art works better when things are aligned because you your effort, your energy coheres and everything in the book is then working towards a single goal, which is moving your audience and generating mm -hmm. satisfying emotion, whatever your genre is, right? Yeah. And like I said, those details, those things can be put in later most of the time. Oh, like once you understand the fundamental bonds. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's like, not like we're depriving people of descriptions or anything, but we're, you know, I later. love description. Yeah. But my thing is, is that if you make it a decision about a character's job before you actually know what that character is doing, you're going to waste a lot of time mm -hmm. in the weeds trying mm -hmm. to figure out like why this person is a telegraph operator or why they're a scuba diver mm -hmm. without really knowing why they're a scuba diver. You've just sort of picked it out of the air. Why is their hair curly, not straight? Why are they white and not Asian? Like, yeah. what are... It's the purpose. And what happens is it gets us stuck in tracks. You want to know why Hollywood makes the same television show over and over again in the same movie? It's because everyone is busy. It's like dogs eating vomit. Mm. <laughs> they go to someone else's barf and they're like, mm, this yeah. is tasty. I know what this tastes like. And then they just barf it up again. And I think it's a, a, a fundamental problem that you, know, you, you address in the book where it's like we look at a finished product or a finished mm. character and all of our experience with that character, and then we go to try to recreate that character from the finished product or from our experience it, without actually understanding what the writer put on the page that, you know, first inspired it. You know, like it's we're doing it backwards, we're doing a lot of right. things backwards. Well, and, and it's funny, you know, I actually think, like when I talk about verbalizing, I'll say to authors, because they'll get in at first, they're sort of scared, because I say, like, grammar is your friend, when you are in school you hated it, now it's your magic wand, it makes mm. you money, yeah. but... Once you sort of embrace the basics of, and I mean the basics of grammar, what is a noun, what is a verb, once you embrace that stuff, you have so much more power over your own voice and over what you can produce, mm. and you sort of have to get out of your own way. I actually think most authors verbalize anyway. I just think they do it at the end, when they're sort of boxed in and they've created all these obstacles to what they're trying to actually tell. Yeah. And so you are stuck saying things like, well, I don't know why he lost a finger. Well, I don't know why his eyes are blue because you've made all these choices without any real intention behind them, mm -hmm. which is a waste of time. Right. And like, I come from show business. We don't have time for that stuff. Like, we gotta go, man. Like, we're on a schedule and we're getting paid. And so, when I came to fiction and people were like, well, I don't know. I'm just gonna find my way. I was like, I would starve to death because yeah. I have to get paid. I have bills. <laughs> yeah. My fans want shit. I need to make <laughs> stuff happen. Yeah. So, it's just more efficient, but it's also more fun, frankly. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of it's not as venal as it sounds. I just think you can have more fun if you like explore the full range of your voice. No, absolutely. and it makes you a better writer. And one of the things that I that I love about your uh, your style, uh, I've listened to your interviews and of course your book. You're reading your book. There's very much your style in the writing. It's not just a dry mm. writer's guide. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you have a ca pretty casual voice, but you also have a very um, uh, large vocabulary, which I love. I think um, one one of my favorite subjects in school was actually vocabulary. Like that was like my my thing. So like, whenever I have someone, when I read a book that challenges me. Sometimes like I get inspired. Like I actually went and did. I don't know if you guys have you ever done those um, that like rice challenge where you like go and like uh, freerice.com. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, no, like, you, check it out. You do vocabulary words. You can get up to like level sixty, and mm -hmm. uh, each time you get one right, they give ten grains of rice to some. Charity. That oh my God! Reading. I have to do that. That's yeah, amazing. It, it's it's fun. So I was actually because of reading your book, I was like, I'm really into vocabulary right now. I'm just gonna go play some free rice, and like you know, I learned some. I learned a few new words today, and uh, like scintilla and perihelion is a, and sundog. I never, like there were some things oh, I knew. Today. Those are all good. But like you inspired me to do that today, so I was well, like, man, I'm just good. really into vocabulary today. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about your love of language and how we kind of spice, like, not just any verb, obviously. So we're verbalizing, like, how do we, how do, we do this well? So one of the things, so the first thing I start with when I'm teaching a class on character, what I'll say is every character is their action, right? So stories conjugate character in the same way that verbs are conjugated in sentences. Verbs, the, the, the action of a character, the action stays the same, but they are sort of revealed. They unfold over the course of the story. And so you want to pick an action that's going to be fun to write. And if you're writing a love story or you're writing a thriller where people are going to come together, anytime you want chemistry, anger, tension, compression, suspense, basically anything in genre fiction, yeah. you're going to pick antonymic relationships. So if you have a character who's going to hide all the time, you want them to come up against a character who seeks all the time. <laughs> if you have a character who tames, you want to have one that unleashes. And by putting antonymic actions against each other, you release a lot of mojo on the page. There's just mm. more heat on the page. Yeah. And that's true. There's romantic heat, sexual heat, violent heat, um, uh, even secrecy or mystery. All of those things come out of that antonymic relationship. But at the same time, by picking an action that kind of pokes your no-no, I had, as I'll tell you, I'm writing right now, I'm writing a book and the main character is a tabloid reporter. Okay. And when I start a book, the first thing I do is I identify the action. So I'm going through and I'm like, okay, tabloid reporter, tabloid reporter. And I was like, all right, deceive, trick, con, snooker, snow, cadge. Like I sort of ran through all these things in my head. And I was like, all right, trick. And I knew it was lame when I first started. I just knew exactly. it was sort of feeble action. And so I'm in and I'm writing. And the way, the way verbalizing works is I start with an action for the character. And then each scene the character is going to use a synonym of that action as a tactic because over the course of the story, they're going to have to react to events, and that means very slightly shifting. And by mm -hmm. using different tactics in each scene, I reveal all the possibilities of the action. So I started with trick, and I was like, all right, I go to the thesaurus, and I pull like 30 different synonyms for trick. And I got to the fourth scene of the book, and I had written down bamboozle. And I was oh, like, oh, my God. His action is bamboo. You, even you saw it, right? Like, you see bamboozle and you're like, oh my god, it's such a good... <laughs> so rich and so funny and so compelling. Yeah. I went back to the beginning and I was like, no, trick is not the action. Bamboozle is the action. Yeah. And everything came out of that. The tone, the language, the jokiness, the irony, everything came out of bamboozle. And then trick just became a tactic, right? Okay. So bamboozle became the arc of the character and then each tactic, con, snooker, snow, it's cadge, whatever, yeah. tap at different points of the story, which reveal all the facets of the bamboozle. And mm. so I get to sort of dig, a, dig around in the action, and I find cool stuff. And then the character opposing, opposing my bamboozle character, actually his, his action is to fight. Um, and so fight and bamboozle, because fight is so direct and mm. bamboozle is sort of snaky and coiling, yeah. it gave all this cool stuff to play with. And it made the scenes funnier, it made the sex sexier. It, it unlocks everything, and all I'm doing is using a thesaurus. I actually, it's funny, <laughs> I used to recommend, um, there's a guide for actors called Action the Actress Thesaurus, because actors use this technique, a version of this technique, this is a little mm -hmm. bit different, but they use a version of this, they call it actioning, but this verbalizing that I'm doing, there is no thesaurus, or there was no thesaurus for active transitive verbs for genre fiction. And so I just now, I just finished it. It's actually in layout right now. It's coming out next week. I have a thesaurus for genre fiction called Activate, which is 280,000 words long. It took me a year and a half to write this thing. Oh, wow. But all it is is active transitive verbs appropriate for genre fiction. And I did one section alphabetically, one section by genre, and one section by direction. So you can keep changing the tune inside a scene. Because... It was so hard to find one thesaurus. I mean, I have hundreds of thesauruses, but nothing was just verbs, just transitive verbs, mm. just trans 
terms appropriate for genre fiction. And so, um, I don't know. It, of course, the more you write that way, the stronger your vocabulary gets. As you yeah. were saying, yeah. you, you sort of unpack your own possibilities because you're like, oh, in, you know, 50 words for snow, right? There are 30 words for love. There are 130 words for trust. And yeah. each one is slightly different. And so writing it is more fun because you yeah. actually surprise yourself. And we have to think about story as, as a transition too, where it's rising energy, rising conflict. Um, things have to change. Like the, the way that you bamboozle in the beginning is going to be, you have to bamboozle way harder at the, at the main conflict. You know, if you're, if and you're more, that, that yeah. escalation becomes yeah. like your primary task because yeah. cliches, boredom, anything that is regurgitating regurgitation, you're sort of falling down the job. <laughs> I feel yeah. like anytime the reader's like, well, I'll put this down. My feeling is they're going to set fire to the book and never come back. Right. And so I want them to read that book and feel like it's nailed to their eyeballs. I never want them to put the book down ever. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fascinating. And I think it's a, a really interesting way to come at writing from like the, the basic level of like the action verbs. I think, I've, like I said, I've never seen anyone do this before. I, this is nothing like I've read before. I'm super excited. Like I said, I'm only part way through the book now, but I'm, I'm entranced. Like I, w- I wasn't trying to put this off. I like, I usually try to read a, uh, a, um, you know, a craft book in between my first draft and my uh-huh. revision process. Cause I'm like, okay, this is when I want to like go in and tune. I things. do the same thing. Yeah. Yep. So I always read one there and I'm like, oh, this will be, I'm close to the end of the first draft. I'm going to wait and read this. And I'm like, no, I started reading it. And I'm like, ah, dang it. I'm hooked. So <laughs> I'll have to maybe, maybe I'll use activate as my in-betweener. And, uh, well, activate's a lot of words. I mean, you'll yeah. use it, but it's not, it's not, I, I, I did a summary of verbalizing there. There's like a four page for people that don't have verbalized. Cause I feel like it sucks if you buy a book and they're like, buy that other one. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, the funny thing is, I think, I think for writers, we each have to find our own path. I don't mm-hmm. think there's one way. Mm-hmm. I see fiction this way. I see storytelling this way. I see films this way. And the truth is, and maybe this is just my own perspective, I think we all see stories as a series of actions that pay off with emotional resonance, right? Yeah. It's just that we all get to it differently. And so I even say, like, one of the things I talk about when I'm teaching a workshop is some people love starting in backstory, and then from backstory they determine an action, and from that action they determine a goal. Some people love goals. And so they figure out the end of the book, and then based on the end of the book, they figure out what they have to do to get to the end of the book, the intention, right, the action. Mm-hmm. And then from that, they extrapolate backwards to the backstory. I'm the exact opposite. I start with the action, and then I can look backwards, and I can say, well, that's what happened in the past. This is what they're aiming towards. But it yeah. doesn't matter which you are, because, again, alignment. They all line right. up. So whatever kind of writer you are, you are gonna you sort of get in where you fit in, right? You find your own path. Because if you have to write hanging upside down at 3 in the morning while naked covered in Nutella, great. Like, whatever you have to do to get the story out of you, if it is telling the story and raising the stakes and escalating and entertaining your audience then ding, 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 <laughs> you win, you're a writer. Yeah. Poor sucker. <laughs> <laughs> All of us, poor suckers. Um, Joe Solari has a question here at your comment. It says, sure. in, in the process of the story arc that the character's verb changes? Okay, so I guess he's asking sort of like, oh, the effect, a, is the effect of the story on the character's verb or vice versa? So this is a common question. A lot of people will say, oh, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, so if you know, who's a good one to start with? Oh, Willy Wonka. All right. Okay. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, uh, sorry, from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the character of Willy Wonka. His action is to astonish. He astonishes on every page of that book. In fact, in the next book, he still is astonishing. What he changes over the course of the book is his tactics. People don't become new people 
or they're different people. And what's weird about working this way is that when you stick to that core action and then unpack as a series of reactions, which I call tactics, mm -hmm. those strategic reactions, because they're all synonyms of that main action, what the audience will say is, oh my God, I would know them anywhere. Because what do we do when we meet people? We look mm -hmm. at how they behave. We look mm -hmm. at what they do. I mean, how many people get married from a personal ad? How many people hire off a CV? You look at how people behave. And right. so we look at actions, we extrapolate from actions. It's how humans operate. We're social primates. And so that core action remains the same for the entire, every book that they appear. If it's a, a 16 book series, that core action will be there. The tactics will keep shifting. This is also why series run out of juice. Because mm -hmm. if you pick an action that's kind of dull, then right. over time, you're going to run out of things to do that are interesting and fresh. Or you're going to have to keep coming at them with new secondary and tertiary characters to kind of leaven the loaf. Um, but the action still remains the same. Like Darcy at the end, uh, uh, Darcy and Lizzie in Pride and Prejudice, Darcy is preserved and Lizzie is provoked. Darcy preserves on every page of that book. There's not one moment when he's not preserving something. At the mm -hmm. beginning of the book, he's preserving his reputation, his honor, his morals. He's preserving his sister from Wickham. He preserves, 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 right? His family's good name. But by the end of the book, he's preserving Lizzie. That's a very different preserve. It's the same action, but the object of the action has changed. In the same way, she provokes on every page of that book. At the beginning of the book, she's provoking because she's making fun of people, and she's angry about her parents' marriage, and she's desperate to find a life that doesn't mirror theirs. But at the end, she's provoking Darcy and making him warmer and kinder and more humble because that is her nature. She is provocation. Severus hmm. Snape vexes. He vexes in every scene of that series. Seven books. And if you look, here's the best part. Do you know what the name, word Snape means? It literally means to vex. His name means I vex you severely. This is why and, I love uh, J.K. Rowling so much. Her naming uh, conventions are, are brilliant. She just The thing is, it's such a clear action for him at every stage. It's why I think he's the most interesting character in the series. Mm -hmm. It's why I think he unpacks so beautifully. Because you can vex yourself, your family, your boss. He vexes Dumbledore. He vexes mm -hmm. Voldemort. He vexes everybody. He yeah. is vexation. And the minute he stops vexing, he dies. That's yeah. the end of him. And so you look at the action, you unpack the action. But of course, over the course of the story, you can't. You could call him a teacher or a martyr or a hero. That's a small piece of him. You could say he's weedy or dark or caustic or rude or, or magisterial. Again, limiting. But if mm. I say vex, know what I mean. Yeah. Anytime you use the verb, it's why when I say ravish, you know what that means. But if I say ravisher, that's limiting, right? I'm, mm. I'm, I'm closing down. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And it's, it's really helpful to have specific um, examples like that of, of characters that we, that we know and love. Well, actually, verbalized. It's one of the things I did. I added. I have like 130 examples from books because when I was first uh, writing the book, I had all these beta readers that came back. They were like, "Do more, do yeah. more." And so yeah. I literally did like all of Tolkien, all of Pride and Prejudice, and then I did second. I did um, about a, a hundred books in yeah. the back. How long did it take you to write verbalize? Um, about nine months, probably. It really was about a three-month period for the bulk of it, mm -hmm. and then restructuring it took another six months because I knew it was sort of not your average writing guide. It was not like yeah. any other writing guide I had yeah. seen. So I, I sort of fiddled with it for about six months, but all told it was about nine. And it obviously took a lot of thought. And, of course, you have been teaching, and you have been involved long in this time. process for you know over 20 years, you said. So yeah. it's you've got a long history of having thought about this stuff before you came to the, came to the book. Old today, booker. But. Old hooker, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's this is fantastic, and like I said, I've, 
the one thing I love about craft books, any craft book, is that when you read them, it's not necessarily about what's on the page. It's it's what's going on in your brain with your story. Jungle Jam. Yeah, so you could, read this, you could read the same book with a new story in your head, and it's a completely different effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's wonderful. I'm already, like I said, my mind's already churning right now just from this interview and from um, and from having read the, the, the bit of the book I've read so far. So um, this is fantastic. And I'm sure a lot of other people are going are gonna to feel the same way about this book. Um, are there going to be more in this series after um, Activate? Absolutely. Um, I've got – so I did Activate. Activate was a direct response to reader requests. So um, workshop attendees were like, you have to do a thesaurus. So that was originally going to be a 10,000-word appendix to okay. Plus, yeah. And then it got away from me, and that didn't happen. So that took a little bit longer than anticipated. The next book will be Characterized, which is actually deep-dive characters. So that will really mm-hmm. be about – how you make a character empathetic, how you actually sort of dig into backstory and pain mm-hmm. and whatever, and sort of how you cast a story. There's actually an exercise um, that I teach all the time where you can take one action and you can cast your entire book because using antonyms and using verbs, you literally can cast out every single person in the story and then structure the story. So hmm. uh, so next will be characterized. And then after that, I think I want to do a book on structure, on uh, scene crafting and on structuring uh sort of building plot and the way yeah. structure works effectively. And then there's one on sex scenes I want to do. There's one on comedy I want to do. There's one on dialogue I want to yeah. do. I, I teach all the time, so these are all sort of workshopped in the wild with actual yeah. working <laughs> professional authors. Yeah. And so I, I'm trying to... It'll probably one every couple of years. I'll put one out. I mean, I have my own publication schedule for fiction, so I've got to get those books done. But these are... It's a labor of love, but I do love it. And I actually yeah. am a better writer because of what my students teach me. So I do, sure. I love sort of being in the mix um, and talking about craft. You know, I look like what we're doing right now, talking shop. Yeah, and it's fun. Like, I'm sure everything you say, like something rebounds back and that makes you look at it from a different angle or see it, see your own words from a different angle. And Absolutely. That's, that's, that's the brilliance of, of language and, and discussion and, and like, I said, like I said, the filling in those gaps. Words. Or, yeah, letting someone else fill in the gaps. And I think it's, it's something that a lot of writers need to learn, of course, and it's, it's an always an ongoing process of trusting your readers to understand and to like understand more even that you, than you put on the page. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's brilliant what you're, what you're doing and how you're Thank you. getting that Thank across. You. Um, for people who are interested, are your workshops something that is open? Um, yes, absolutely. I teach. I teach about like last year. I taught. Th- I was in thirty nine different cities, so I teach all the time. I'm usually teaching three weekends a month. Um, I love traveling, and um, but I've been. I was on three continents last year teaching. But if you go to my website, DamonSway.com, um, I have a class page that has my current confirmed schedule, and those range from an hour session to three day sessions. Um, I've done sort of. On any topic, but I'm I'm always teaching. I'm always traveling and teaching. And those I I don't think I've ever taught a class that was completely closed. They sometimes they sell out, but they don't. But there's no limitation on attendees. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So yes, teaching and um, and actually a lot of my schedule is also on that same calendar. You can see on my website kind of where I am and what I'm up to. Fantastic. And I know people can find your your books. It was um, DamonSway.com/livewire. That's right. That correct. Okay. All right. Where do you hang out online as far as like? Um I'm mostly media. a, I'm really a Twitter person. Um, okay. I I have a Facebook account. I use it. That's really more for readers, but for colleagues, like for for fellow authors, I, a lot of it is I I tweet as Damon Swade, just D A M O N S U E D E. I also now I just started um, hashtag Daily Verb. Um, if you want to subscribe, I have a verb that gets delivered to your inbox every day at 7 a.m. Eastern. 
um, nice. with verbs and antonyms and everything else. Well, just because I'm like the verb guy now. So, yeah. And someone said, where do I find verbs? And I was like, girl, I house you. <laughs> so I have Daily Verb, and that's on another Twitter account I have uh, called Livewire Guides. Um, but if you just go to hashtag Daily Verb, you'll find it. Okay. Yeah, I, I need to sign up for that right now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a second, dude. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> no, I, I, like I said, languages, we all love language. Anyone who's watching this show is you know, a reader or a writer or obviously both. Um, and we it's love, our superpower, yeah, right? Love it's our language, superpower. love talking about language, love reading about language. It's, you know, we're going to geek out about this stuff, and I, we could geek out about this all day, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, but so you're going to be at Nink. Um, any other upcoming places? Um, I will be, um, let's see, uh, next weekend I'm in Georgia. Uh, weekend after that, I'm up in Boston at Necra. Um, I'm going to be in Arizona in June uh, for for Desert Rose. I will be nice. at RWA National. I'm on the board of Romance Writers of America, so I will be doing a master class on tropes and subgenre at National, um, which is in New York this year. Incidentally, if you want classes, I have audio uh, recordings of about, I think it's about eight or ten master classes that I do um, pretty regularly for RWA every year, and they're downloadable. They're like two bucks or three bucks or something on the RWA site. But nice. um, so, but every year they have me come in and teach a big master class for all the authors. This year is going to be tropes, and then um, in the Nink in September, um, and then in uh, November I'll be in Bristol. Um, I'm doing a two day thi- or a three day thing on romantic suspense. Um, with my husband, who's a forensic investigator, so we're yeah. going to go and talk about dead people. I've listened to some of his uh, podcast episodes recently too, and they're also fascinating. Um, yeah, he's, I really enjoyed your stuff on Larry Penn's podcast recently. Mm. And, um, yeah, just I, I can't imagine just like the the dinner table conversations you guys <laughs> have must just be a blast. Everything you can imagine is true. It is absolutely. True. <laughs> uh, this is this has been really cool. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for for taking your time to to come on our show here and hang out with thank us. Thank you, man. Thank you. This, is, this has been a lot of fun, and like I said, I, I hopefully hopefully we'll have you on again uh, sometime in the very thank near future, not. and um, we can we can do this all again. Very great pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you, everyone, for watching and for listening. Um, like I said, if you have comments for Damon or questions, feel free to throw them up in the comments. We'll try to get him to come back and, and hang out with us in, in the comments section later if we can. Uh, but, uh, yeah, thanks for watching and listening, and we'll see you again next week for another great episode. So long.